Though quoted as a humorous statement, Yogi Berra reveals a problem many people face today. If we come to a fork in the road, take it. Doesn't matter which fork, just take it. Yogi's been quoted on that hundreds of times, maybe thousands of times. There are many other quotes of Yogi Berra. If you'd like to read them, there's a book published with all of his quotations. They are incredible, amazing, an amazing read. Pray with me this morning as we seek God's understanding of this text from Revelation 2. Holy Father, speak to us about choices and consequences. Help clarify for us what it means to follow, truly follow your Son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You'll be seeing some slides today. They're not real clear. Not because the pictures are bad, but because we don't have the right projector working this system right now. And one of these days we're going to be talking to you about that. So all this stuff would be so clearly digitized and be able to see it plainly. You'll be stunned at the difference once that finally takes place. But the town of Pergamum was 40 miles north of Smyrna, 80 miles north of Ephesus. Unlike Ephesus and Smyrna, Pergamum was not on a road to anywhere. You were on the road to Pergamum only because that's where you were going. It dead ends at Pergamum. It was an out-of-the-way place. It was built on a large hill overlooking the Caicos River Valley. Essentially, it was a mountaintop fortress. And Pergamum commanded a broad view of the valley and was home to a significant and magnificent amphitheater. In 282 BC, Pergamum was made the capital of the Seleucid Kingdom, a section of the empire of Alexander the Great. In 133 BC, about 150 years later, Attalus III died and he willed the Seleucid Kingdom to Rome. Rome renamed the region Asia, called it a province, and kept Pergamum as its capital. Pergamum was the center of Roman rule throughout the entire province. But it was not only the capital, it was the place of highest court authority for the people who lived in Asia, and I'll get back to explain that in a couple of moments. Pergamum boasted the second largest library in the ancient world, the finest being in Alexandria, Egypt. It contained an excess of 200,000 scrolls written on parchment. Pergamum was noted as the place where parchment was invented. Barclay accounts the history of the development of parchment called vellum. Politics today is no different than politics back then. Listen to this. For many centuries, ancient rolls were written on papyrus a substance made of the pith of a very large bulrush which grows beside the Nile River in Egypt. Papyrus was universally used for writing. In the 3rd century BC, a Pergamene king called Eumenes was very anxious to make the library of Pergamum supreme. In order to do so, he persuaded Aristophanes of Byzantium, the librarian at Alexandria, to agree to leave Alexandria and come to Pergamum. You feel it coming? Something's going to happen here. 
Ptolemy of Egypt, enraged at the seduction of his outstanding scholar, promptly imprisoned Aristophanes and by way of retaliation put an embargo on the export of papyrus to Pergamum. You want your library? Write on something else. Faced with this situation, the scholars of Pergamum invented parchment or vellum, which is made from the skin of animals. It is smoothed and polished. In fact, parchment is a much superior vehicle for writing, and although it did not do so for many centuries, it in the end ousted papyrus altogether as a writing material. Because of its extensive library, Pergamum was also known as an intellectual center and a university town. And as typical with the Greek culture and later the Roman culture, Pergamum contained many temples and shrines to gods and goddess, goddesses. It was a polytheistic nation, both of them. Two of its most famous shrines are worth at least noting for a moment. The first was the great altar built to Zeus. It stood on the edge of the hilltop on which Pergamum was built. It was erected about 240 B.C., and it served as a memorial to a great battle victory that the Pergamites had over the invading Gauls. At the base of the altar was a frieze which showed the battle of the giants in which the gods of Greece were victorious over the giants of the barbarians. Portions of that frieze have been preserved. They are currently housed in a museum in Berlin, Germany. The second is a shrine to Asclepios, the local Pergamene god. When people in Asia swore by oaths, they would usually pick one of these three, Artemis of Ephesus, Apollo of Delphi, and Asclepios of Pergamum. Here we see the road people traveled to the shrine of Asclepios called the Sacred Way or the Healing Way. The powers of Asclepios were centered in healing and people came from all over the world to this mountaintop fortress to be healed. The most common title for Asclepios was Asclepios Soter, Asclepios the Savior. With that kind of background, listen as we walk through what the Savior of the world says to the church that exists in this mountaintop fortress of Pergamum. The first thing, Jesus identifies himself. These are the words of the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. He describes himself by what he possesses. There's another text in the Bible written much before this concerning the sharp two-edged sword from Hebrews chapter 4. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Catch these things. The qualities of the two-edged sword. It is living. That is, it is dynamic. It is not static. It's not a set of rules and regs. It is dynamic. It is moving. It is alive. Second, it is active. It is working now. It's not merely a historical statement of something that happened way back there. It's active to now. 
The sword is sharp. It cuts cleanly. The language used here would describe it more as we would call a scalpel today. It is able to perform fine surgery. The sword penetrates. In other words, it goes deep. It's not just a surface tool. It goes deeply. The sword can separate or divide. It clarifies what's really going on and identifies what's happening. And the sword judges thoughts and actions. It gets to the core of what's wrong and what needs to be done to make it right. There's some additional historical data that undoubtedly impacted the meaning of Jesus' ID to these people in Pergamum. See, I mentioned earlier there were two kinds of Roman governors, those who had the right of the sword and those who did not have the right of the sword. Those governors who had the right of the sword could inflict the death penalty based on the court results. They could also pardon the one who had been sentenced to death. They had the authority of the sword or to remove it. Those governors who did not have the right of the sword could neither inflict death nor could they keep it from happening. The governor of Pergamum, the capital of Asia, had the right of the sword and could inflict it or withhold it. Bottom line, Jesus is reminding the Christians in Pergamum that he is the one who holds the ultimate sword, the real power of life and of death. He has the ultimate authority. He speaks to them. And he begins by praising the church in Revelation 2.13. I know that you are living right where Satan's throne is. You are holding on to my name, and you didn't break faith with me even at the time of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan lives. Jesus is telling this church in Pergamum, I'm aware of where you are, and I'm aware of what's going on in your midst. I know what's really happening here. I don't think he was speaking about Satan as a part of a temple worship that was going on there, but he's talking about the other gods that are being followed. I think he meant the execution of Christians who would not bow down to Caesar as God. For temple, excuse me, Caesar worship had become very prominent during this time of John's later life. In Pergamum, the governor would sentence people to death who did not bow. We can make an assumption, and this is as far as we really can go, that Antipas was one of those faithful people who died at the hands of the governor of Pergamum. Now, if you go on Google, which is always true, right? If you go on Google, you'll discover stories about Antipas that remind me of the stories of Paul Bunyan in the Minnesota area. Delightful stories, a good read, no credibility, no historical data to back it up. There's stuff on Antipas, but I wouldn't give it much credence. It's interesting story. It might be a good historical novel of some kind, but it's that. It's a novel. It's nonfiction. It's, it's fiction, not nonfiction. But we can assume that this is a man who was killed by the decree of the governor because he did not worship the emperor in the town of Pergamum. What the Lord is acknowledging them for is their faith in the face and the fear of death. It was very difficult to be a Christian living in a place like this. 
And the Lord was aware of how it really was for them. So he identifies a problem in their midst, a problem they had. Not the place, but the church itself. In Revelation 2, beginning in verse 14, I have a few things against you. Because you have some there who follow Balaam's teaching. Balaam had taught Balak to trip up the Israelites so that they would eat food sacrificed to idols and commit sexual immorality. In the same way, you have some who follow the Nicolaitans' teachings. Two problems that Jesus identifies through John's revelation. The first is, there were people in the church who held to the teachings of Balaam. If you want to read about Balaam and Balak and all of that, you can find that in Numbers chapters 22 through 24. It's a good read. It's, it's a great story. It's a declaration of what Jesus is talking to this church about. But basically it's this. Balaam was a prophet of the Old Testament who was hired by Balak, king of Moab, to pronounce a curse on the children of Israel. He did not pronounce the curse. Instead, he pronounced the blessing upon them. Later, however, he joined with the Midianites and lured the Israelites into believing that Baal Peor, a fertility god, and the practice of fornication was okay. Balaam and all his followers were destroyed by the sword of the Israelites who had remained faithful to God. Terribly bloody stuff goes on. It still does. It still does. I think the emphasis here is about luring or accommodating people to a lesser God. Instead of loving people by confrontation and accountability to God's full gospel, the Christians ignored the problem. Buying into the notion to live and let live. These folks weren't gluttons or lavish livers or ostentatious or party animals but they were lazy in their love for God, in their love for each other, and in their duty to call each other to righteous living. Essentially, the Balaamites were conflict avoiders. How are you with that? Probably none of us really enjoys conflict. But it's necessary at times. I was 13 years old. I became very ill after a track meet. And they rushed me to our doctor's office, and he said, you have appendicitis, I need to take your appendix out. Now, if I'd been a conflict avoider, I would have said, I don't want to be cut. I'm sorry. Give me some medicine for this. But you can't cut me. I want to avoid the conflict of the incision. It's about there. You'll have to just imagine I'm not going to show you. And he cut me open, not avoiding the conflict, but entering into the conflict to set me free from what ended up being an appendicitis that actually broke when they put it into the pan beside the surgical table. I was very fortunate it came out when it did. Conflict avoiders end up with more problems than problem solved. Sometimes we have to face things head on. Not harshly, not roughly, not rudely, but confidently that this needs to be faced and dealt with in a forthright way. Time does not heal everything. Time would not have healed my appendicitis. Time does not heal animosity between people. 
Time does not heal a brokenness in our relationship with God. But getting into the conflict, the issue at hand, is absolutely crucial. Some of us need help with that. That's why we're together. That's why we're called a family in the church. Some of us are better at it than others. So we need to find people to help us when a conflict comes into our life so we can be well and whole. I couldn't have had this appendix removed by the librarian or a friend or my parents. It took a surgeon. I'm glad we had him. And Dr. Dawson remained a family friend through all of my parents' life. But there was a second problem, the people in the church who held to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Basically, it's a similar thing ends up in the same place, but let me describe it to you. Some people followed the teachings of Nicholas of Antioch, believed by many to be the deacon, called and blessed in Acts 6.5. Nicholas sought to work out a compromise with the culture and the numerous gods of the Greeks and Romans. His apparent thought was to enable Christians to take part without embarrassment in some of the social and religious activities of the Roman culture. The Nicolaeans didn't want to stand out as different from their neighbors, so they believed that, listen to this now, freedom in Christ was so that they could do as they pleased and stay connected. Rather than freedom to do the right things, the things that honor God, they did the things that made them not stand out, and they accommodated This behavior was especially challenged by the sexual promiscuity of the Roman culture. Sex, sexuality gets in the way all the time. It always has, it always will. I'll say that again. It always has, it always will. The Nicolaitans fit in by being sexually indulgent as well. Basically what they did is they proclaimed Christ on the inside but they live just like everybody else in that culture on the outside. Ouch. Have have you experienced that here in your life at all? We probably have all experienced that in the life of some people that we have seen. How about in your own? Temptations are great. The culture is powerful. It's like a massive river. It flows downhill. Notice that downhill, downhill. Rivers never flow uphill. just doesn't work that way. Gravity pulls it. The terrain, the topography pull it down. Christians are called to swim up. We have to find resting spots behind boulders like fish do in the regular streams of North America. But we don't go along with the current because the current is going where? Downhill. It's challenging. Again, we need each other to swim uphill. These Nicolaitans would claim Christ privately and then live like anyone else publicly. In the fallacy of freedom, the Nicolaitans were self-indulgent party animals. I remember when I left a church that I served in California and began my earliest tenure here with you all, when you were on Franklin Square. I was a young youth pastor, about Allie's age, maybe a little bit older, but not as smart or wise as Allie. You, you who've been here a while, remember me then, 
It wasn't, well, and then we'll just leave it at that. And I went back to do a wedding. And while I was there, a couple that Carolyn and I were really close to, we had been a part of a musical group called Country Church. The four of us sang and played instruments together. And we had done a number of uh, concerts and we did a number of retreats together with some, I call middleweight theologian preachers working at, at the same time. It was a great time. We had a lot of fun. And the gal in that family wanted to talk with me. And I was stunned when we were sitting in my car um, as we had gone down to a coffee shop and we're going to grab a bite to eat. She said, I want to leave my husband. I said, what? I thought this marriage was really great. She says, yeah, that's what everybody thinks. What happened? She said this to me. I quote her verbatim. I think God wants me to be happy. I'm not happy in this relationship. Huh. Where, where in the Bible does it tell you that God wants you to be happy? I'm missing something. Well, doesn't he in the Beatitudes, in the Living Translation, happy are those who, and happy are those who, and I says, yeah, it doesn't say happy are those who leave their marriage because they're not happy. What the Bible says is faithfulness. God wants you to be faithful. Now, if there's issues, that can be dealt with. We can work on that. If there's a violation of the marriage covenant, that's one thing. But God wants you to be happy so you're leaving your husband? I'm sorry. I think you're reading the texts all wrong. I don't think that's the heart of God. They divorced. She married the other couple we were close to, the husband of that couple. And six kids ended up with four parents over time. It it was massively disturbing in a very large congregation in California. And my wife and I were heartbroken. It was while we were here that we were dealing with that out there. God's not looking for us to be happy, although he doesn't mind if we are. He calls us to be faithful to him. And the happiness will come if we remain faithful. They've realized that now since we have stayed in touch with all now those couples. It's very confusing when we go back and visit. But they realize this was a choice. We made it. God is working with us, but it wasn't the best choice. We should have worked it a little better than we did. The Nicolaitans were people who believe, well, God wants me to be happy. So they participated in sexual promiscuity. It was so prevalent. Do you know that one in five men sitting in this congregation are struggling with pornography? And one in seven women are? It's quiet in here, isn't it? It's because it's so easily accessible. You can do it privately on your phone in a corner, on your computer in your office. It's rampant. The issue of sexuality and sexual practice is so prevalent. 
You can't buy a set of tires from Town Fair Tire without some lusty woman telling you how good they are. And every beer commercial you watch on TV during the football programs later today, if you're a football watcher, or the baseball shows that are on now because of the the championship series going on, will show busty, lusty women and goofball, idiot guys. If that's going to sell beer, we're admitting we're busty, lusty, or goofballs, doesn't it? Isn't that the underlying message that's going on there? My friends, it's amazing how we continue in the cultural problems from yesterday, today, and it will continue tomorrow. I could go on. I better keep going into this sermon. Jesus identifies a consequence, excuse me, a solution. Revelation 2.16. So, change your hearts and lives. That's a description of repentance. Repentance is something I've spoken on here several times because it's prevalent in all of these stories to the church and it's prevalent throughout Scripture because the truth is we need to change our direction and change our ways towards God. That's something we're responsible for. We may need the help of others like Stephen ministers or pastors or Christian friends for that to happen. God doesn't turn us around. We have to make the choice ourselves. But listen to this. It's not a difficult concept. It's a challenging thing to do. Number one, I've got to admit I'm wrong. In all the premarital counseling I've done over the years, I always work with the husband on this topic. Guys, here's something I want you to learn in this marriage that you're going into. You need to learn five words. I'm sorry. I was wrong. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Women seem to be able to do that easier than men on on a general basis. That's a hard thing for some guys to say. I had one guy sitting across from me said, I I said, repeat after me. I'm sorry. Uh, 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 You're not, are you? He said, that's really hard. I appreciated his honesty. It was challenging. But we have to admit that we're wrong. We're doing wrong things, we're having wrong thoughts, we're saying wrong words, we're going the wrong way. It begins, repentance, by admitting, I'm wrong. It then goes to, I've got to turn away from the wrong. If this is the wrong, I've got to turn from that. If what's coming out of my mouth is wrong, I've got to stop saying those things. If I'm projecting attitudes of judgment and coercion on people, that's wrong. I need to stop doing that. Turn away from it. But not only that, it's just not admission of wrong and turning from wrong. We have to turn to what's right. So often in the church, I see people who are attempting to admit wrong and to stop doing it, but they don't replace it with the right thing. It won't work that way. We've got to go in the right direction. I've got to turn towards God, toward the cross that's up here. I've got to turn and go in the right direction. That's what repentance is all about. And Jesus identifies two consequences. The first one, if they don't repent, if you don't, if you don't change your hearts and lives, I'm coming to you soon, I will make war on them with the sword that comes from my mouth. The Lord is concerned about the church that has allowed people to stray and has not involved them in deep discipleship, including possibly discipline. The church at Pergamum was called to repent. 
The Lord's warning is clear. Take care of these people, or I will come and wage war with the sword of my mouth. Please hear this. He doesn't say, you come at them. He says, he'll deal with them. Our job is to take care of each other. Our job is to encourage each other, to bolster each other, to hold each other close, to call to accountability by traveling together through a difficulty we may be facing or going through. This is why it's so powerful in this congregation that we have Stephen ministers who are trained to do that, and they do it so effectively. I've been impressed as I have watched Stephen ministers care for people with all kinds of situations in their lives. The believers are not to wage war or perform surgery on each other. Our responsibility is to personally repent from any wrong in our life and help each other to do the same. The Lord himself will deal with those who don't. When we judge, we're basically saying to Jesus, I have a better idea than you do. Can we live with that? I think not. Jesus then goes on to identify the second consequence. If you can hear, listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. I will give those who emerge victorious some of the hidden manna to eat. I will also give to each of them a white stone with a new name written on it, which no one knows except the one who receives it. Some of the hidden manna. The manna was hidden during the reign of Josiah, the king of Israel, The temple and the Holy of Holies and the ark and the manna were sure to be destroyed, so he had the ark taken and all the elements that were inside of it, and it was hidden. It has remained unfound to this day. Thus the movie Raiders of the Lost Ark and many historical accounts of people trying to find it. I believe the hidden manna has already been given. You'll hear me on that in a moment. The white stone with a new name written on it. It had three significant meanings to the people of Pergamum. In the court of law, if the judge issued you a white stone, if I had one in my hand, I'd give it to Allie. She's acquitted. She's not guilty. She's set free. She's got the white stone to prove it. If you played in the Asian games and you were victorious, you received a white stone. That white stone gave you free entrance into every athletic contest from then on for the rest of your life. It was the stone of entrance. You got there, you got to go free. It's like if you got a white stone, you could go to every Red Sox-Yankees game for the rest of your life. You could go to every Patriots game for the rest of your life. Or for me, I could go to every Bears game for the rest of my life, and I'd be in London right now, not sitting here with you. I'd rather be here. I don't think they're going to do well. And that's not the only reason why I like you. And third, the people in Pergamum had stones as a part of their necklace which they wore like a dog tag. And it had on that stone the name of their God. So in the religious circle, you would be given a white stone with the name that Christ gave to us. Christian. One of Christ's. One who belongs to Jesus, the Messiah. 
Three things are stated by that. So what's transferable? I think it's simple. God has the power of the sword. And God uses that primarily to bring life to those who deserve to die. That's what God always says to us in the scriptures. He longs for us to have life. He recognizes our troubles. It's everywhere we live. But if we remain true to him, wherever we are, whatever our circumstances might be, we will be well. The problem is duplicity. Like Yogi Berra, it doesn't matter which fork you take. Or in his funny statement, you take both of them. That's duplicity. We are, my friends, either all in with Christ or we are not in at all. You can't be partly Christian. You can't be partly a follower. It's not a fair weather following. It's a whole life following of Jesus. Read James 1, 2 to 8 in your spare time. It gives us perspective about being all in. I want to move to the end. Some key questions. Have I succumbed to the world in some way? In other words, am I duplicitous in my life? Am I living with my foot in each part of the fork of the road that I have before me? Am I a noticeable Christian? Can people recognize readily that Jesus Christ is the Lord of my life? Have I failed to be encouraging and challenging with my brothers and sisters of faith? Am I lazy in my love, letting people slip away? If the answer to any of those questions is yes, this text calls me to repent, to admit I'm wrong, to turn away from that behavior, those words, and to turn toward the Christ who gives us a whole new language to speak and life to live. God will present the hidden manna, the bread of life for you and me in his son Jesus. That manna is not hidden anymore. It's not in a container in the Ark of the Covenant. It's in these trays of bread, the body of Christ given for us, the manna that nourishes our spirit for eternity. The manna is given to us. And God will present the white stone to each of us, the white stone of our acquittal, the white stone of our entrance into eternity, and the white stone of our intimacy with himself. God's done this. We are a part of it. We have it at our disposal. May God help us to recognize it, receive it, and live by it. That's the message to Bethany out of the text to Pergamon. Pray with me. Father, some of us have become loaded down with duplicity. I know in my life I have, and I thank you for redeeming me out of that. We notice that our step has lost its bounce, or our thoughts have lost their brightness, or our memories of vitality with you have turned yellow from age. This is not what we planned for, but here we are. As we reflect on our lives, we notice that we're carrying some of the trash of our disobedience, our self-indulgence, our choices, the trash of our attitudes that quickly forgive ourselves but are very slow to forgive others. 
the trash of our words and behaviors that cast judgment on others rather than bring encouragement and care and help and hope. We say we believe the gospel, Father, the good news, but there are times when we are not good news people at all. Today we choose to repent, to leave our bag of laziness and duplicity, our sorrow and sin, our good intentions yet our incomplete faith, and to turn towards you. By your grace, we ask you to change our hearts, the direction of our affection, the focus of our intentions, so that you can truly have your way in us and we can be your people who are faithful in all things to Jesus, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen.